podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're sharing our favorite reads of the spring season. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Good. I am excited to hear about your favorite spring books. Yeah, me too. These are always really fun episodes because we just get to talk about what we've recently read in general without worrying too much about which classic they pair well with. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, I love reading with pairings in mind. I know you do too. It's really fun to think about the way the books we're reading are in conversation with each other. Sometimes you just read a good outlier. You don't have another reason to talk about it. I agree. I have quite a few books like that on today's list. I'm sure some of these might find their way onto a pairing, but for now, I'm just excited to talk about some recent spring reads. I also, I don't know why, as I was looking at my reads, March felt like it was a thousand years ago to me. Yeah, I feel the same way. I couldn't remember what I read in March. And then I looked back and was like, oh yeah, these are great books, but they felt like I'd read them for forever ago. But looking back, we both have read some great books in the last season. Before we get into those, though, did you have a favorite episode or classic that we read for spring? I mean, I almost forgot about our whole entire Pride and Prejudice month. Yeah, speaking of March, feeling like <laughs> right? forever ago. Yeah. It almost feels like it was such a separate thing. Which it was. It was new and exciting to spend a whole month on one book, and we're excited to do it again in the summer. But that was so special, and it was, I mean, obviously a lot of fun to launch Patreon and start to share bonus content over there and teach some classes. And I mean, that's definitely been such a major highlight of the spring season. I agree. Getting to know some of our listeners a little bit better has been awesome over on Patreon, whether that's in our classes or when we meet up for book club. We've already discussed Pride and Prejudice and Giovanni's Room with patrons, which has just been so fun. And I agree that Pride and Prejudice Month was the perfect way to launch Patreon, to try something new. And yeah, great kickoff to a great season of reading. Yeah, I've really enjoyed each of our spring selections. I think the one that surprised me the most and that I had so much fun talking about with you was Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. That just completely took me by surprise because I knew that I liked reading it in high school. I just did not expect it to be like a read in two sittings kind of book now, but I loved it and it was so much fun to talk about and get super nerdy about. Same. I mean, it was out of our wheelhouse for both of us. But I love talking about it. It made me want to go back and reread more Vonnegut. And I've loved seeing listeners who also picked it up because we we read it. And they they also found many of them that it wasn't a book they would expect to love, but it really worked for them. I also really enjoyed In the Time of the Butterflies. That one feels more like a book that is so in my wheelhouse that I can't believe I didn't read it sooner. 
But those are always lovely books to discover too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it's just so fun to hear directly from listeners over in Classics Club, our Patreon community, and like really put faces to names and voices and hear directly from them about what they loved about these books has just been such a joy. All right. Well, speaking about hearing about books that we loved, let's get into our spring favorites. So these are just books that we've read over the past couple of months. They aren't necessarily new releases. Some are, some aren't. And none of them are classics. These are all newer books that we picked up for fun. So Chelsea, I'm excited to hear about your first favorite. All right. I kind of just dropped these in order by when I read them. So in March, I read a really fun romance novel called The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan. And Courtney Milan is an excellent historical romance author. This one is great if you prefer closed door romance or just romance where the open door scenes are not very steamy. Because they're, I think, I well, it's like halfway open door. It was very... It's low steam and low angst. So what I mean by low angst is often in a romance novel, there is what's called like a dark moment where the two characters have been together. They either break up or they sort of have a falling out or something where like you just don't know how they can possibly reconcile and get back together. But there really wasn't a moment like that in this book. It's still a romance. It still follows the historical romance pattern, but it was just really clever the way that she crafted the conflict and made it, like I said, really low angst, really low anxiety for the reader. And I just thought that that was lovely. So The Duke Who Didn't is about Chloe Fong, and she is a list maker She loves to get stuff done. She is a businesswoman. She is working on getting her father's sauce recipe in the hands of everybody across the country. And so they are ready to like set up their stand and open a business. And there's this big festival where they're going to debut the recipe. But her childhood sweetheart comes back to town and ends up sort of serving as a distraction, but also a helper. And um, it's just a lot of fun. So Jeremy is the Duke of Lansing. And so he comes back to this village. He kind of thinks that everyone doesn't know he's the Duke, but everybody actually does know. So there's like this fun kind of hidden identity piece and he really wants to convince Chloe to marry him. And it's just the story of them reconnecting. It's a lot of fun. Courtney Milan is funny. There's some really great humor in this. The characters are just delightful. Like I said, low angst, like really easy reading. It's not a novella. It is a full, full length historical romance novel, but it was pretty short. So I highly recommend it for any beginner historical romance readers, or like I said, those who would like to read in the genre but are looking for something that is not so steamy. The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan. That sounds great. I'm I'm going to put that one away for when I need a low anxiety <laughs> read. 
I think that you would really enjoy it. It's it's really cute. And her, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't mention her author's note is amazing. Her author's note is incredible. And so I don't want to talk about too many details of that, but just know it's a long author's note. But reading at the end, like I almost probably would have just given the book like three stars. Like I really liked it. But then I read her author's note and I was like, wow, this was incredible. What about you? What is on your list for spring? My first one is one I also read in March and kind of got me out of a little bit of a reading slump that I'd been in. I read The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. And this was my first Kate Quinn book. I know she is beloved by historical fiction readers and that I think she tends to write books that are um, feature pretty badass women who have really interesting jobs, usually in times of conflict. And this one is no different in that regard. Um, and I I thought I was done with World War II historical fiction. Like, I definitely was burnt out from it, like many readers. And so I was dragging my feet to pick this up. But I got so many personal recommendations for it. I finally picked it up on audio on Libro.fm. It was great on audio. So this particular World War II story follows three women who all work at Bletchley Park. And Bletchley Park was a real place in England that worked on code breaking during World War II. So Alan Turing worked there. Um, If you have read and watched World War II fiction, you've probably seen Bletchley Park or, or heard of it. And what I loved most was just all three of these women who worked there. They were all so different And they each had such a unique voice and perspective on the war and reason for being there, whether it was something they were escaping or something they were trying to prove or just something that clicked inside them when they started this work. It was really, really interesting. I just love the way she explored women and work in this book. This is a dual timeline historical fiction but quite different from many others. The timelines are only seven years apart. So we're looking at 1940, like kind of in the the lead up to, to the war, and then 1947. And in 1947, the UK is preparing for the wedding of Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And one of the characters, one of the main characters is Prince Philip's ex-girlfriend and based on a real woman who was this very glamorous Canadian woman who Philip dated before um, becoming serious with Princess Elizabeth. So that was really fun to learn about her. And in the present day or the later timeline, the 1947 timeline, we also know that one of the three women who are our main characters is in an asylum. She has been locked away because allegedly breaking these codes has driven her insane and she's a threat to the country. And we are on an urgent deadline trying to get her out of that asylum. So there's this real sense of like 
urgency and fast-pacedness in that 1947 timeline. And then in the 1940 timeline, we get to see the, the real inner workings of Bletchley Park during the war. I just, I loved it. I loved the characters. I thought the story was surprisingly fresh given the concept. There are some really hard things in here, and I appreciated that Kate Quinn didn't shy away from loss and devastation and death that makes up a war. But there was also a lot of hope and redemption and the way the women lean on each other, but also aren't always good to each other felt very real to me. So I just loved it. It is The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. Did you ever watch The Bletchley Circle? No. So it was on Netflix like six or seven years ago. It's a It was a PBS or BBC miniseries about Bletchley, but it takes place in the 1950s. So it's about four women who were all code breakers at Bletchley, but then they like go back to their normal lives. And then all of these unsolved murders keep cropping up and they realize like if anyone has the skill set to solve these and find the pattern, we do. So they end up using their code breaking skills to investigate. So I loved this show. It was a total binge watch for me. I think there were two seasons and it was so good. I was sad when it was over. And I think that it's on Amazon Prime right now if people still want to watch it. So it's still out there streaming. It's just not on Netflix anymore, but it was really good. And this was before, I feel like there have been a lot of Bletchley books coming out lately. Not Mm -hmm. a lot, like two or three. Yeah. But this was really before that started happening. So this show was one of the first pieces, one of the first texts that sort of came out with all of these like declassified files and information to draw from. So it's really fun. I highly recommend it if you loved that book. Oh, that sounds really fun. I will definitely look into that. Okay. Let's see. What do I have up next on my list? Oh, all right. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I don't think I ever referenced it in an episode as actually having read it. So (laughs) April was National Poetry Month. I picked up What Kind of Woman by Kate Baer. We've mentioned her poetry. We really enjoy following her on Instagram. But this was the first time that I actually read her poetry collection cover to cover. And I absolutely loved it. I dog-eared so many pages. I will probably read it again soon because with poetry, that's just it's just so easy to do. And I loved it. I don't have much more to say. I feel like it's pretty well known. Like I said, we have referenced it on the podcast before. We've recommended it to a lot of listeners who are looking for accessible poetry, but I just thought it was really good. All right. My next book is one I think I talked about in anticipated spring books preview, but I hadn't read it then. But I did read and love Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. And this book is really slim. It's very short. And whenever a book is really short, I feel like I can't give too much of a plot setup because it gives away just too much. But the main setup of this is we have Talia. She's 15 or so. She lives in Columbia and she is at a juvenile detention center when the book starts for a very violent act that we know she committed, but seemed very out of character and just 
not 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 who she was. So we want her to we want her to get out of this situation that she's in. She escapes from the detention center in the first chapter, and then the book really follows her as she makes her way to the capital and to the airport so she can get on a plane and fly to the U.S. where her mother and her siblings live. So her family has been divided by borders and immigration. Her mother and two older siblings live in the U.S., and she has been living in Colombia with her father since she was a baby. So she doesn't really remember anything about the U.S., anything about her her mom, um, other than phone calls that grow kind of increasingly more difficult as she gets older. But she has citizenship because she was born in the U.S. So she's kind of making this journey. And I thought that the book was really going to be about that journey and about Talia. It is, but we get to see the whole family and their history. And it always amazes me when an author can include so much about a wide cast of characters and their backstories in so few pages. But Patricia Engel does it so well where you really feel like you you know this couple and you are devastated when immigration breaks them apart and you you get to see like how you know how this family feels about being separated about whether they made the right choices for themselves and for each other and uh it really is like a, a lovely reflection on kind of the arbitrariness of borders and then the connection of family and i i really loved it i think i i did it both on audio and on the page, it was great in both formats. And I, I think if you love family stories in general, but also if you are seeking more books about the immigrant experience, then definitely pick up Infinite Country. And I will also say, because you know books like this are often devastating, and this one has really hard moments, but I think it, it ends with a lot of hope, which I was not expecting, and I really appreciated. So that is Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. I think that we both listened to this next one on Libro FM. No, I haven't yet. Oh, I really? I have it downloaded, but I haven't listened to it yet. Okay. Yeah. For some reason, I thought you did. But anyway, well, this will be a good pitch for you to listen to it soon. So I listened to and really enjoyed the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton. And this features a full cast of narrators including Bonnie Turpin, who is amazing. And they were all really, really good. So this is an oral history, sort of in this, in the similar vein of Daisy Jones and the Six. Um, and it's, at first I thought like it was a little too similar that I was, wasn't finding it engaging, but then the book takes a turn in the second half that I was like, oh, Donnie Walton is doing something completely different here. And it's definitely a story worth listening to. So without giving too much away, Opal and Nev, Opal is Opal Jewel. She is a black um, funk singer and she is just like moving to the beat of her own drum. She's super interested in fashion. She goes ahead and like shaves her head and 
is just, I don't know, at the forefront of, of so much. And Nev is a British musician who comes to the United States and he sees her at like an open mic night and decides, I want her in my music group. So they form a group together, um, but they're struggling to really get it off the ground. Like they're making great music, they think, but it's not exactly popular. So their record label decides, okay, well, we want to pair you up with this Southern like rock country group. And this group is known for like waving the Confederate flag at their concerts. So Opal as a black woman is like, hell no. Um, But Nev wants to do anything for fame. So they reluctantly agree to do the concert and something happens at that concert that just changes them forever and basically makes its way into the history books. So later on, we get to meet this, well, later on in the timeline, but she's like right at the front of the actual story. Um, We meet this music journalist who's trying to figure out what exactly happened that night because her father was there and was affected. And so that's where the oral history comes in, is this music journalist is the one driving the story. And we get what I liked, and I think some readers might like this, some might not. The journalist, we get a lot of the journalist, her story, her perspective, her process for figuring out what exactly went down. And I liked that part. And I thought that that's one thing that really set it apart from Daisy Jones. So I really enjoyed it. Like I said, especially in the second half, really great narration. I love a full cast and yeah, it's definitely a buzzy book of summer. So the final revival of Opal and Nev by Donnie Walton was really great on audio. All right. I am going to have to listen to that soon. That sounds great. (laughs) All right. My next one is something that I really think our listeners in particular might enjoy especially if you are a Classics Club member and are enjoying our extra nerdy content in our classes, this is a book for you. I read and loved Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction Writing and Workshopping by Matthew Selesees. And I had read one of his novels last year, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, and really, really enjoyed it and then was excited to see that he had a book about writing coming out. I don't write fiction. I don't teach anymore. So I wasn't sure if I would get a lot out of this book, but I heard from several readers who were like, this is a great book for readers as well. You don't have to write fiction to enjoy it. And you definitely don't have to be a teacher. And that that was very true. So this is from the back cover because I don't think I can explain this better, but it says the traditional writing workshop was established with white male writers in mind. What we call craft is informed by their cultural values. In this bold and original examination of elements of writing, including plot, character, conflict, structure, and believability, Matthew Selesees asks questions to invigorate these familiar concepts. And so basically what he's doing is writing about how what we think of as good writing 
is culturally constructed by and for white male writers because that's how the workshop model has worked forever. That's how publishing has worked. That's who the imagined reader was for so long. And so he is taking things that we think we know about what makes a book well done and what makes craft good and worthy. And he's kind of turning that on its head and saying these are all cultural assumptions, not objective realities. So one example from the book is that he talks about how in a lot of literature, plots kind of get resolved through coincidence. Characters run back into characters who they haven't seen in in years. And that kind of coincidental rediscovery is a culmination of the plot. And how a lot of white readers dismiss that as not believable and overly coincidental, but how in the tradition of Black storytelling and even just the history of how slavery operated in our country, that kind of rediscovery and quote-unquote coincidence is how you would have rediscovered your family and part of yourself. And so, you know, just the way we readers might think of something as being believable or not, or good or bad, or, you know, good writing or not, is just entirely informed by our own experience. So I thought this book was just incredible at helping me think about my own assumptions as a reader. And especially the first half of the book, I will say, the second half gets more into how to teach writing with this new model in mind. If I teach again, I will definitely return to it. But you could definitely, as a reader, I think, just read the first half. You will get so much out of it. I I found myself like really thinking about it with every single book I picked up. I, I read this right before I read The Book of Tokyo, which is a collection of short stories by Japanese authors all centered on Tokyo. And I definitely had the experience of and this isn't a good story. This isn't how stories should look. And then reminding myself of my own cultural assumptions that I bring to storytelling and to writing. So I thought it was so good. I think we should bring it into Classics Club at some point, <laughs> maybe read some of it together and discuss. But I really think our listeners would would value Craft in the Real World by Matthew Selesees. I'm so excited to read that one. I have it sitting in my cart with a couple of our summer books that I need to get in my hands, and I cannot wait to read it. Well, it will be per- a perfect companion for some of our summer books, or especially the books in translation. So, oh, I love that. Okay, this next book that I listened to on audio, I think that you would really love to. It, it's high on my list. <laughs> so good. And the audio was absolutely lovely. So if you like quiet family stories about friendship and the theater, I loved that part of this. You definitely need to read Good Company by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. And I thought the audio was just wonderful. I listened to it over maybe the course of two or three days, like pretty quickly. I kept finding excuses to listen to it, which is the best audiobook listening experience that you can have. 
despite it being a really quiet contemplative story where there isn't a ton that happens, like there's not a lot of action in this book, but I just really came to care about the characters. So we have two couples whose lives have been intertwined since they were young actors in New York City. But at the very opening of the book, um, one of them just discovered her husband's wedding ring somewhere that it wasn't supposed to be. And she begins to question everything. So the book is told in present day and then a series of flashbacks so that we get a sense of who these people are, what their relationship is like, what their marriage has been like, and then who their friends are because their friends are really like family. So these two couples actually moved from New York City to Los Angeles for different acting opportunities. Um, and that like shapes them significantly as well. But I just thought it was so lovely. Um, such a darling explanation of, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not really darling. I thought it was really lovely. It is... It's sweet and poignant. It's not syrupy at all. I thought that the characters felt really real to me. I loved there are a few theater references and just the way that they talk about plays versus film work and their acting careers. I thought just gives a really interesting peek into that world. And like I said, the relationships are really the core and that's where the conflict comes from. So I especially think the two main female characters are really characters to root for. They have a very sisterly friendship and I, I really, really liked them. So I highly recommend Good Company by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney on audio. I don't think I'm doing a great job of plot summary, but the plot isn't really the point of the book. It's the characters. I have a physical copy of it, but while you were talking, I just downloaded it on <laughs> Libro FM, which we have to say the Libro FM app got another update. It's amazing. Now you can purchase your audiobooks straight from the app. You don't have to go to a web browser to do it. It makes it way easier to spend and use your credits, which I love. So I just ordered it. And just a, a quick reminder that you can still get two audiobooks for the price of one with our code novel pairings. All right. Up next for me, I feel like this book was like written for me and it lived up to exactly what I wanted. I loved Olympus, Texas by Stacey Swan. So like I said, this was a book that it just felt like it was written for me. It is a character-driven family story. It has a very lush Southern setting. And it's a Greek mythology retelling. So everything I want all rolled into one. I thought this book was really smart and clever without verging on like too clever. Like I see what you're doing here annoying kind of clever. It was still just a really engaging story. It's about the Briscoe family. They live in Olympus, Texas, and they are, you know, kind of town royalty. They own a real estate company and they therefore own like much of 
the town. But they are also a very dramatic family, and a lot happens uh, to them and um, because of them in this particular community. So the book kicks off when March Briscoe returns to Olympus after a two-year self-imposed exile. He left town because he was caught sleeping with his brother's wife. And obviously, family turned on him. He felt like he needed to get out, but now he wants to reconnect with his family. And so he comes back. Some people are happy about that. Some people are less than happy about that. And that really is where the drama of this book begins. The book is dramatic, sometimes in these big, epic ways, as you would expect from something based on Greek mythology. However, it's a slow burn. I would say it takes about a third of the book, about 100 pages, to really get the setup and to move into that like fast-paced, dramatic plot. And it's because there are tons of characters that she has to establish. This is a big family with siblings and half-siblings and uncles and just and other people who have been affected by the family in town. So I, I thought this was maybe going to just feel slower in general than the plot summary leads you to believe, but it's really just a slow setup and then things really hit the ground running about a third of the way through. I also thought the writing was was great. She really does a great job with the the setting, which was which was really fun and, and definitely like evokes a summery, hot, sweltering feeling, which I like in a spring or summer read. So I really, really enjoyed this one. And it has like the best cover of the year so far. I think it's gorgeous. So that is Olympus, Texas by Stacy Swan. Okay. I have some nonfiction here, which I'm realizing I it's been a long time. I don't know. I feel like I rarely include nonfiction on these wrap-ups, but Anyway, I loved this one so much. I finally read Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And I say finally because I've been meaning to read it for years. And I think the subtitle is some instructions on writing and life or some instructions for writing and life. And that rings so true because I felt like I got just as much practical life advice out of this book as I did writing advice. And you really do not need to be a writer in order to read this book and love it. Partly because Anne Lamott's style is so lovely. Her voice is sassy and funny, and she just weaves really great stories into Bird by Bird. But also because I think it just gives you a fun peek into the writing life and just gives you some things to think about in terms of your favorite authors, your favorite books, So I would recommend it to anyone, but certainly if you do any kind of writing, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott is a must read. And I'm so glad that I finally got to it. It was so good. I read this a long time ago and would like to revisit it because I I really enjoyed it when I did read it. But I just I feel like it's the kind of book that you would get something new out of with every return to it. 
Totally. And I feel like it's also one that is really easy to pick up and just read one section or one chapter. And you get a lot out of that chapter and you don't necessarily have to go on to read the next. So it's a good one that you can read in tiny little bits and pieces, which I think a lot of writers do when they need inspiration. Mm -hmm. They sort of like turn to that page that they know Anne Lamott will, will speak to them from. All right. I have another nonfiction title for us. I read Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space by Amanda LaDuke. And, oh, this book was so good. It was what I wanted uh, women and other monsters to be a little bit more of. And academic literary interpretation, sociological exploration, and then personal narrative. She balanced those three things so well into this uh, into this book. And so the, the book explores basically disability representation in fairy tales and then how the, the way fairy tales depict disability impacts the way we see it in the real world and view it in our lives. Primarily, she's talking about, and this like was such an aha moment for me that I just feel pretty dumb and privileged for never having really thought about, but she just talks about how in all of these fairy tales and then in other stories that portray disability, they're really about the disabled person transforming their life to be able to live a happy, fulfilled life in society instead of about society saying, how can we change so that disabled people feel comfortable and can thrive in the society that they live in. It's just like such a simple but profound thing. And the way she explores that through fairy tales, I thought was really, it was just a really easy way for me personally to connect with it and feel like I was getting something that I I should have known before, but she was doing such a good job of explaining in this original way. The book is kind of organized by fairy tale. Um, but she also like brings in fairy tales from around the world. There's a whole chapter about the bloody chamber actually, which I obviously loved. And this would be a great bonus pairing for the bloody chamber. I, I thought it was so smart. It, it came, it got maybe a little bit repetitive as sometimes these sort of essay collection books can do, but I listened to it on audio. So that didn't bother me as much. And it's definitely something I will return to. It's also something if I were still teaching, I would definitely pull some excerpts from and bring into the classroom. If you're reading any kind of fairy tale adjacent things, highly recommend doing that. It it was just really, it was a great reading experience for me. And I think if you are looking for books about disability, definitely pick this up. But even if that's not something that's really on your radar right now and you just like reading great analysis of fairy tales and thinking about the way stories become sort of archetypal for how we view our lives, this is a great book that looks at that as well. So it is Disfigured by Amanda LaDuke. What a timely exploration when we're trying to figure out as society returns to quote, quote, normal, what does normal 
look like for everybody and who exactly is that serving. So it sounds like the perfect time to read it. Exactly. I was thinking about that so much about how much we rightfully accommodated everyone's needs around this pandemic, but how rare it is to do that for individuals. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a great time to pick this one up for sure. All right. Another audiobook that I listened to on Libro FM is The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth. And I included it in here because I couldn't stop listening to it, but I don't know if I would call it a favorite. Like I am still a little on the fence and I'm also kind of like, what did I just read? So for the most part, I liked it. I'm also sort of holding out for some more own voices reviews to come out around this book. Um, All of the trigger warnings. This book is being compared to Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. But this is like a domestic thriller. So it it's a lot of things, though. So I don't know how many people read um, The Mother-in-Law by Sally Hepworth. But similarly, it's a mystery, but it's also like family drama, mix of women's fiction. The Good Sister actually has a little bit of romance, which I really liked. It's it is hard to explain. Um, so Fern and Rose are twin sisters and Fern is a librarian and she has a lot of trouble um, in crowds, in different situations, just with sensory processing. And it's pretty clear that she is somewhere on the autism spectrum. I did speak with a reader or hear from a reader who loved this book, who has a child on the autism spectrum and thought the representation was wonderful. But, you know, you can't just assume that that applies to everyone and that everyone will agree. Um, So like I said, I'm still holding out for some more own voices reviews as far as the autism representation. But then also just because this is kind of like a psychological thriller, I just always get a little bit squeamish about those and never know, like, is this being used as a plot device and that's okay? Um, You know, are the characters fully realized here or, you know, is the mystery at the forefront? In general, I did like I loved Fern. I just fell in love with her as a character so much. Um, And yeah, stuff gets really complicated with Fern and her sister. Um, There is a baby involved. There are some mentions of infertility in here. So trigger warnings for that. And just like a trigger warning for a scary situation with a baby that ends up being okay. Um, But it's a it's a domestic thriller. So there's just a lot of content warnings applicable here. And um, it was a wild ride. So that's The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth. I've seen a few reviews circulating and people seem to really like this one. But like I said, I just always really hold my breath for own voices reviews, especially in the mystery and thriller realm, because I don't always think it's well done. Um, Here, I think it was, but that remains to be seen from from reviews. I'm glad you 
brought that one to the episode today. I've been wondering about it. I did read The Mother-in-Law and really enjoyed it. It it also like had kind of a weird, what is this book thing? Like, is it a domestic thriller? But I'm I'm laughing. And then ultimately, maybe it's more just a family saga. I it, Yeah. So I I liked her first one and I've been curious about that one. So um, I'm probably not going to bump it to the top of my list, but I'm going to keep it on my list for sure. It's a really good summer read. And I will say part of why I liked the audio so much is Sally Hapworth is Australian. So oh, yeah. there are some good <laughs> Australian accents to listen to. Yeah. Yeah, I I also I just have been kind of in the mindset too as I was looking at my books today and then I also do uh recaps, monthly recaps for Fiction Matters patrons where I rank every book I read and I've just been thinking a lot about where do I put the books that I like I don't know, I feel kind of meh about, but I could literally not put the book down yeah. while I was reading it. So, I I love those books. Those are great summer books. So I always like adding more of them to my lists. All right. My last one is not one of those at all. This is a book that <laughs> took a lot of focus, took a lot of time. It's going on my list of forever favorites, though. I loved it so much. It is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. And this is a Man Booker winner. Came out in the 1990s. I read it with my Fiction Matters book club over on that Patreon page. And I chose it because the the winning mood of what we wanted to read was a modern classic. And this is one that I have been wanting to read forever. It is very much a, a modern classic in the sense that it's an award winner. It catapulted Roy to fame. It's still read and taught in classes. Um, and literally, if you Google modern classic, it's like the first thing that comes up on every, every single list. Um, it was so good. It is about two twins, a boy and a girl, in India in the 1960s. When they are seven years old, their cousin from England comes to visit them. She's a couple years older. And while she's there, she dies in a kind of mysterious accident, at least at the, as the book begins. The book is told in a non-chronological timeline. So in terms of like how we're reading, we're reading the lead up to Sophie, the, the cousin. We're reading the lead up to Sophie's death and all of the little things that contributed to every, everything going just so slightly wrong that it led to this horrific tragedy. But we also see a present timeline where the twins are getting ready to be reunited after like 20 something years of being apart because after this accident their mother felt she couldn't take care of both of them and sent one of them off to live with their father so they haven't seen each other since they were 7 so like the book kind of slowly but with a sense of urgency propels you to those two climactic moments one in the past and one in the present timeline. It was just phenomenal to me in terms of the writing. It was lush and poetic. Roy sometimes plays with language in an almost Alice in Wonderland-like way because so much of the book is told through children's perspective. It also 
has fantastic characterization. I love the way the like non-chronological timeline makes you question cause and effect and if things really had to end up the way they do and how we traditionally tell stories in this like beginning, middle, end way. But is that really what our lived experience is like? It just had all of those like nerdy, beautiful things that I love. I would love to read this in a class. Uh, But talking about it with other Fiction Matters patrons was almost like that. I felt like I got so much more out of it. This was pretty polarizing. Not everybody loved this book, so I wouldn't recommend this to everyone. But if you are looking for a book that's really challenging, but beautiful, like you really just want to sink your teeth into something meaty, this is a great book to do that with. And I will also say it was really powerful to be reading a book set in India right now as COVID deaths are just spiking there. And there's just so much going on that I can't even imagine. And reading this really also reminded me of how little I know about India as a country. And it made me want to read more uh, from Indian authors. So that was The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. You are so good at finding those hidden gems that are modern classics or are going to be modern classics. And also just books that make the world feel a little smaller. I love books like that. It Those are really like, when I find them, it makes my heart very happy. And The God of Small Things will definitely be appearing at some point on this show. And maybe one day we'll cover it as a modern classic too. Well, speaking of covering classics on the show, before we close this episode out, we should quickly share our summer season and what we're looking forward to. So we'll just kind of list these off, but you can take a look at our newsletter, novelpairings.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at novelpairingspod, or if you are one of our patrons in Classics Club, you can actually listen to a full episode where we go into more detail about each of these books, and you can find dates listed for all of these in, in those places as well. So this summer, Sarah, tell us what we're reading. First, we're reading The House of the Spirits by Isabel Allende. We are super excited about this one. It is a brick, so we are reading it for all of June. Our two main June episodes will both be about The House of the Spirits. We'll tell you exactly how we're dividing that when June gets a little bit closer. Uh, But yeah, we're super excited for that one. And then we are reading another book in translation, a little novella for our first episode of July called The Summer Book by Tove Janssen, which is supposed to be very sweet and very moving. I'm also really excited to read The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton in July. And then as summer heats up, we are going to read A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams in August. Yeah, that's perfect for the the heat of summer. And then we're finishing our summer season with The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor. And this was a listener suggestion. Some listeners who read this as a buddy read recently loved it and and requested that Novel Pairings do an episode about it. It'll be the first read of The Women of Brewster Place for both of us. And I am super excited for it. 
So in the midst of all of that in our summer season, we are also doing a bunch of exciting things in Classics Club, which is our Patreon community. If you are unfamiliar with Patreon, it's basically just a platform where we are able to post bonus content, including podcast episodes and classes and links and all sorts of things for our patrons who support our show financially. And we are just so absolutely grateful that Classics Club supports our podcast in this way. It allows us to save for businessy things and podcast stuff to um, just help fill some dreams for this podcast and help pay ourselves for the work that we do for producing the show. So if you would like to support the show and join our Classics Club community, we've been having a lot of fun over there. You can go to patreon.com slash novel pairings. And there are two tiers to choose from. We have a $5 tier where listeners can get bonus episodes each Friday. And we have an $8 tier where our Classics Club can get live and recorded classes and book club chats. So we have some live and recorded events, some bonus episodes, and lots of behind the scenes fun. There are also lots of great ways to support the show for free. Engage with us on Instagram by commenting with your favorite books of spring or share that you're listening and tag us so other readers can find us. Or one of the very best ways to support the show is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge, huge difference for us in the rankings, and it really just puts a smile on both of our faces and reminds us why we are doing this. So we really appreciate all of those shares and reviews and comments. We we love them all. A big thank you goes out to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music, and next week There is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything.